0: Before we begin, please allow me to apologize for the delay in production. I fell ill and lost my voice and some hearing. My voice is not 100% back, so please bear with me. Now, on to the podcast.
1: Hello? Hello? Yes? Who is this? Mm, Who are you trying to reach?
2: What number is this?
1: What number are you trying to reach? I don't know. Well, I think you have the wrong number. Do I? It happens. Take it easy. Hello?
2: I'm sorry. I guess I dialed the wrong number.
1: So why'd you dial it again?
2: To apologize.
1: You're forgiven. Bye now. Wait, wait. Don't hang up. What? I want to talk to you for a second. They've got 900 numbers for that. See ya.
0: We've all had them. The phone rings, but no one is there. You start to call a friend, but find you are already connected because they just called you. Your phone doesn't ring, but there is a voicemail. Not so strange and easily explained, but there are some phone calls that are just incredibly strange that they defy logic. From phone calls from the recently deceased, to advanced warnings to crucial events to calls that seemingly come from the future. There is an endless amount of mysterious and unsolved phone communications. This is Season 4, Episode 7, Strange Phone Calls. Our first story is called The Ghost Hunter. In 2016, a ghost hunter received a call from a homeowner that desired this particular ghost hunter to investigate what they described as a haunted house. The ghost hunter was curious that the man on the other line had found him, as he had not been active in the field for some time, and he had not publicly advertised his service or his phone number. The man requesting the investigation did not elaborate on how he knew about this particular ghost hunter, but asked for assistance. The ghost hunter said he would need to look at his work schedule and would need to call back to arrange to gather more information and a time to investigate the suspected haunted house. Two days later, the ghost hunter called the number back the man had given him, but a woman answered the phone. She indicated she had no knowledge of a request from her husband to investigate the house. In fact, she told the ghost hunter that her husband had been deceased, passing on a decade earlier. The woman thought it was some sort of prank, so she disconnected the call. Confused and curious, the ghost hunter then searched his call logs and noticed the phone number that called him previously was different than the one he had just called. He decided to call back to see if there was some sort of misunderstanding and to clarify the request from the man. Perhaps he was just given the wrong number and it was all a simple mistake. Upon calling the number, the ghost hunter's call just went to static. The call connected, but there was no one on the other line. He tried repeatedly with the same result. He decided to call the woman back and apologize, and when the two spoke, he told the woman he had called the number back, but it was not working. Curious, she asked what number he had dialed, and when he revealed the number, the woman was silent for a moment and then said that the number that he had called was the woman's and her deceased husband's old landline number. The Chatsworth crash. On September 12, 2008, a Metrolink commuter train filled with passengers in Chatsworth, California, collided head-on with a Union Pacific freight train. The collision was a result of one engineer not paying attention and texting while he was operating the high-speed train. The result the deaths of 25 individuals, and 102 injured, some severely. One of the deceased was 49-year-old Charles Peck, a customer service agent for Delta Airlines at Salt Lake City International Airport. He had come to Los Angeles for a job interview at Van Nuys Airport because gaining work in California would have allowed him to wed his fiancée, Andrea Katz, of Westlake Village. This would have been his second marriage, Peck had three grown children from a previous union. His fiancée heard about the crash from a news report on the radio, as she was driving to the train station to pick him up. Andrea Kratz was worried and anxious to find out if Charles was okay. She knew he was on the train and things could be horribly wrong, but her fears were alleviated when one of Charles's sons called her, indicating Charles had called him from the train. For the next 11 hours, Charles' family members received calls. There was no one on the other line, and there was just static. And when they tried to call Charles back, it went straight to voicemail. In total, 35 calls were placed to various family members.
2: She says they might have looked like an odd couple. Andrea Katz is 6 foot 1, Chuck Peck was 5 7, but she says they were made for each other. They've been friends for 20 years and after his divorce a couple of years ago their friendship turned to love. She was on her way to pick him up from the MetroLink station when she heard the news on the radio. She knew immediately he was on that train, but was he alive? And then they got the first call. It was to Chuck's son in Utah, and he said, "My dad just called me.
1: And I said, what did he say? Where is he? Is he okay? It, it, he didn't say anything. The phone rang, and it
2: said, Dad. They watched the tormenting search for survivors, certain that Chuck was alive and trapped in the wreckage. Between Chuck's kids and other family members, about three dozen calls were made from Chuck's phone. But there was only static and silence. And then, almost five hours after the collision, at 9:08. Andrea got a call.
1: And we were yelling in the phone, you know, hang in there, baby, they, you know, we're going to get you out, you're going
2: to be okay. It was the hope they needed, and when the rescue efforts were about to turn to recovery, there was another call, and that prompted search crews to trace it. It was coming from the first train, so they went back in one last time. And they were
1: so excited they had this incredible adrenaline rush at the thought that they could possibly go find another survivor. And we gave her a description and they spent the next couple of hours looking for him. And um, they did end up finding him and they said that he had died immediately on impact and there was no way he could have been calling us.
2: She believes those phone calls got them through the night and helped them find Chuck's body.
1: The intellectual side of my brain thinks, gee, it was a computer malfunction and the emotional side of my brain. It was just Chuck letting us know that he knew that we
2: were scared for him and letting us have hope. And she's also comforted by the fact that they were happy, ready to get married and start their new life together. She believes he was riding that train with a smile.
1: He died instantly and he didn't suffer. And when you love somebody, you couldn't ask for a better way for them to leave this life. Just happy and excited and didn't see it coming.
2: And they may never find out exactly how those calls were made because Chuck's phone was never found. Reporting from News Center, Lynette Romero, back to you in the studio.
0: Grandpa is calling. On April 12, 2011, a young woman received a strange voicemail. Her phone did not ring but she noticed she had voicemail she had somehow missed. She played the voicemail and said she recognized the voice, but it was impossible to be true. It was the voice of her deceased grandfather. Here is the voicemail. The distinguishable whisper appears to be the voice indicating who they are, Grandpa. Saved message. An author's strange call. In September of 1988, author Dean Kuntz was working in his office when the phone began to ring. Kuntz answered the receiver and heard a weak, faraway voice on the other end of the receiver. The voice warned, Please, be careful. Kuntz asked the person's identity, but they did not respond to his inquiry. Instead, they repeated their warning three additional times before the line went silent. Kuntz was in shock. The voice sounded just like his mother, except his mother had been dead for nearly 20 years. Koontz was baffled because his number was unlisted, and it was an eerily placed call. When he tried to identify the number that had called him, there was no such listing. Two days after Koontz's strange phone call The retirement home where his father was staying contacted him. His father, Ray, would often cause problems at the facility, but the problems were escalating, and he became violent, punching another resident. Nurses at the facility were concerned and asked Kuntz to speak with Ray and try to calm him down. When Kuntz arrived at Ray's room, his father wasted no time and proceeded to grab a knife from a drawer, which he attempted to use to stab his own son. Kuntz had to fight off his father, and he eventually was able to get the knife away from him. Police arrived, and they took Ray to a psychiatric facility, which everyone felt was the best place for him at that time. It took Kuntz a long time to talk about what he justifiably feels was a fateful phone call. Once he felt comfortable sharing his story, he did what he does best and wrote about it. In a book titled Beautiful Death, The Art of the Cemetery by photographer David Robinson, Kuntz writes an essay about his phone call experience, sharing the book's theme of exploring death. Have you ever tried to find a cheap hotel room and you open up Expedia, then you open up Travago, then Booking.com, then Hotels.com, and so on and so on, trying to find the best deal from all the hotel discount and booking sites? What if I told you you could do one search in one window, either online or using your mobile device? What if I told you that you can take all these discount search sites, combine them into one easy to use app, saving time and money? It basically finds the cheapest price anywhere. There are no additional fees, including taxes, and the app is free to use. What you see on the screen is the exact amount you will pay. Now, this isn't a separate booking app. It is a comprehensive, yet easy way to do hotel searches. Think of it as a cheap hotel search engine. It simply finds the best deal for you. Savings are incredible, sometimes up to 70% off. There are even options such as pay now, pay later, free cancellations, no credit cards required. With a database of over 270,000 hotels, 46,000 hostels, 500,000 bed and breakfasts, and 1.3 million apartments, you will be sure to find the best hotel at an incredible price. Now, do you want this app? Find the best hotel room at the best price. Just visit www.experiencethis360.com. At the top links, you will see a link called Best Travel Deals. Click that or use the drop-down menu to get to a specific area. Links will also be made available in the show notes. Again, that's www.experiencethis360.com. Now back to the podcast. November 22nd, 1963.
1: Two warning calls. For where you're terrific, If you're even good where
0: We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin from ABC Radio. Here is a special bulletin from Dallas, Texas. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas, Texas. This is ABC Radio. To repeat, in Dallas, Texas... Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today. The president now making a two-day speaking tour of Texas. We're going to stand by for more details on the incident in Dallas. Stay tuned to your ABC station for further details. Now we return you to your regular program. The events unfolding in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963 are certainly a whole series of podcasts we will hopefully explore in the near future. To some, the death of President Kennedy is still an unsolved mystery. In regards to the topic of this current podcast, two mysterious calls were placed just minutes before tragedy unfolded in Dallas. Twenty minutes before the first shot was fired at the motorcade, the first call came into a local telephone operator in Oxnard, California, who answered to a woman who claimed that the president was in immediate danger and that he will be assassinated. Another operator joined in on the conversation at the General Telephone Company. The woman repeated that something has to be done, that JFK was going to be shot in Dallas very soon. The woman would not reveal who she was or how she knew but she remained on the line for 15 minutes describing that JFK would be shot by multiple men when he drove through a parade in Dallas. She mentions the school book depository and an advanced team of hitmen. The call ended when she said she also feared for her own life. The phone call would come to the attention of the FBI, and recent declassified information reveals that initially the call was deemed highly important. But then the investigative notes assessed the call to reveal that the FBI tucked it away and deemed the call to be of little importance, and was most likely a call from a, quote, mentally disturbed woman. Some believe they had identified the woman, tracking down the number used to call the operator, and this particular woman was murdered only six days after JFK was assassinated. But more on that mystery in a future podcast. But this was not the only call placed on November 22nd, 1963, just minutes before the assassination that the FBI had to investigate. In recent data dumps by the FBI, it was revealed that a second call was just made minutes before the assassination, and about five minutes before the mentally disturbed woman made her call. A memo to the director of FBI revealed that a call was made to the senior reporter at the Cambridge News at 6.05 p.m. on the day Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas. The document from Deputy Director James Angleton said the British Security Service has reported that 1,805 hours on November 22nd, an anonymous telephone call was made in Cambridge, England to the senior reporter of the Cambridge News. The caller said only that the Cambridge News reporter should call the American embassy in London for some big news, and then he hung up. More strange revelations came from the memo, including that just 25 minutes after the call ended, the president was shot. The memo continues. After the word of the president's death was received, the reporter informed the Cambridge police of the anonymous call, and the police informed the Secret Service. The important point is that the call was made, according to MI5 calculations, about 25 minutes before the president was shot. The leaked memo was something of a mystery unto itself, as no one in the newspaper office remembers anything about a call or that the authorities had even investigated. The newspaper never ran a story about the call either. Perhaps the newspaper reporter was sworn to secrecy when both the FBI and CIA investigated. Recently released information under the Freedom of Information Act indicates they did investigate the call, but had no further leads other than what is presented here. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links, and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you, or someone you know, will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios, and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Sallard, Mattia Cupelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kohlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.